Welcome to Parent Talk Podcasts, where experienced parents and expert guests give tips and tricks on making parenting a breeze. Well, at least a little easier. Now here is your host, Genevieve Kyle, and co-host, Heather Fox. Hi everyone, welcome to Parent Talk, broadcasting out of the greater Vancouver area. The intention of this podcast is to inform, educate, and support parents from the early years and beyond. I'm your host, Genevieve Kyle. I'm 42 and expecting baby number two, while my son Alexandre is one and a half year old. Today we're talking about planning and preparing for toddlerhood and beyond. So let's go around the table and introduce ourselves. Hey everyone, Heather Fox here, co-host of Parent Talk. I am a 40-year-old mom and my son Hudson is a year and a half. And hello, thank you for having me today. My name is Julie Romanowski. I'm an early childhood consultant and I specialize in children's behavior and discipline. I have a five-year-old son who keeps me very, very busy and I'm the owner of Misbehavior Parenting Coach and Consultant Services. Awesome. Well, thank you, Heather. Thank you, Julie, for being here today. So, Julie, let's start right away with how can we manage our toddler tantrums? Well, the first thing is, is recognizing that tantrums are, are common. They're supposed to happen. They're, they mark for very good development. So a lot of parents have come to me and said, oh, my goodness, my, my toddler's having so many tantrums, and one day this is horrible. There's something wrong with them. It's a natural part of development. So just recognizing that right off the bat will help put you, mostly the parent, at ease and be able to navigate through that tantrum. The other point I want to add is really considering yourself the guide to help that child through their tantrum. So a lot of the times we kind of separate ourselves when a tantrum takes place. We get triggered. Our own stress response instincts get triggered and we want to fight or flight. You might be both. Some of us are one more than the other. But what you'll want to do is fight that child. No, I told you to go to bed. And then it kind of takes you down more of a negative path. Or some people are like, I'm out of here. There's the flight mode. I can't deal with this. You deal with this. I'm out. I got to go take a break. I'm out. I'm going. <laughs> and that's not helping the tantrum either. So recognizing that you as the parent are the guide to help that child through the tantrum. They're just learning this, especially in toddlerhood. They are just learning what the, those emotions mean, why you're saying no to everything, why they can't have their agenda met, why are they not getting what they want. We are the teacher, the guide that says, hey, this is how it's going. This is what we're wanting from you or f what's healthy and safe for you. Can you give us an example? <laughs> of a tantrum? <laughs> well... <laughs> Guiding them through. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see the tantrum example, though. <laughs> it's what Hudson does right now. Well, how about some examples as to what to do? So if you have, uh, let's just say, a two-year-old and, and it's uh, time to turn off the TV... Okay, I'm going to hit you hard. Um, we want to we give them notification. So that's, we'll talk more about communication. But you want to let them know as much as possible. Um, that's going to help decrease the tantrum or help decrease the frequency and the intensity of the tantrum. However, even with notification, you can turn that TV off or screen, you know, if you have an iPad, whatever it is. Um, and then you're going to have that child react. Okay, for, for toddlerhood, that is normal. And that reaction is the start 
of the tantrum process. And so what you want to be saying to that child is acknowledge they're upset. I know you're upset because I turned off the TV or you wanted more TV. Validation is huge. So just letting them know that you understand what it is that they're going through. That's the first thing. And the second thing, be available. So that's both physically and emotionally available. Now with physical, you want to be nearby. You don't want to just jump on the child and start smothering their tears away. That could be a little too physical, but you want to be nearby, letting them know I'm open, I'm available for you. And then emotionally available, really wanting to be there. Okay? That's hard to do sometimes um, because we can get triggered ourselves. But when we, when we have a child struggling on the floor, crying, screaming, in their world, having that TV turned off is the worst. Um, And if they can look up and see that my parent, my number one caregiver is there for me, both in physical form and emotional form, wanting to guide me at my worst, that is quite a powerful message for that little child, but it works for any age group. So Julie, what are the good ways to communicate with a toddler? That's a good question. I've got three key tips here. The first one is validation. Whatever that child is feeling, whatever they're wanting, whatever they're doing, just mimic it right back. So if that child is saying, I don't want to go to bed, then you would just validate that. I can see you don't want to go to bed. You don't want to go to bed, do you? And it allows you to just start on the same page as that child. Otherwise, if we miss that validation point, That child thinks you don't get them, and then they'll work even harder to make you try and know what they want and get on that defense. And that can increase the intensity and frequency of tantrums and, and negative behavior. So validation is very important as the first sort of port of call. That's why I call that one tip number one. Tip number two is about choices. Now, we've heard of choices before. That's quite, I mean, nothing new. A lot of people do give choices, but it's... giving choices within the desired outcome. So we want to refrain from yes or no questions. Do you want to go to bed right now? Uh, You know, it's likely going to be a no. (laughs) So you want to refrain from yes or no questions and developing a choice within the desired outcome. So you want your child to go to bed. The choice would be, do you want to go upstairs or do you want me to give you a piggyback upstairs? Do you want dad to put you to sleep or mom? Do you want to read two books or three books at the bedtime routine? And it's it's that desired outcome, which is you are going to bed, but here are a couple of choices. And toddlers especially, but this works for all ages, they really want to hang on to one of those choices and own it. And it makes them feel like they are in charge. They're running the show. So the key with step number two with the choices is ensuring that it's within the desired outcome, okay? And even if you're giving several choices as you go through the bedtime routine, that's okay too. Choices to me become like a second language. It's just always happening with with toddlers in particular. Um, The third step in terms of communication after validation and choices is really coming clear with the boundary or expectation that you are wanting. So when it, when we're talking with toddlers and, and uh, I mean, as adults, we know the entire scope. We're like, okay, clean up, you know, wash your hands. It's time for dinner. Then it's bedtime. We know all that background information. 
uh, toddlers don't. In early years, it's very difficult for them to, to understand the entire scope. So by giving them clear expectations, having a discussion, I see that you're playing with your blocks right now. It looks like it's fun. I want to join you. But in five more minutes, this is ending and point or gesture towards what that is or, or saying what that is. This is ending. Then we're point over to the bathroom. We're going over there and we're washing hands. After that, we are sitting at the table and we are eating the lasagna and just letting them know, this is what I'm expecting of you. One, two, three, I'll be here with you. We're going to have fun and be connected and talk through this entire process, but it's really giving them the clear expectations, sort of those next few steps. So just to recap with toddler communication, the three key steps to really enhance, to really make your communication effective is the validation, the choices, and clear expectations. Awesome. So Julie, how do we navigate bedtime? <laughs> Good question. A lot of parents tell me um, they're exhausted with bedtime and, and rightfully so. It's difficult. Um, there's a few different factors going on that work against us. And once we recognize what's working against us, um, we can sort of make that shift to help it work with us. So a few things that are going on at bedtime, as I consider sort of factors to making it more challenging, is the obvious one. We're all much more fatigued at that time. A lot of parents come back from work. They've been in traffic. They've had a full day. They just want to watch their TV, drink their wine, and just sort of have peace and quiet. And, and we're done mentally, physically. So a lot of the time we have a perception that we need to get this bedtime over and done with because mommy needs her Netflix time and we've got to go. Unfortunately, we have to give the most time, patience, and guidance at bedtime. So um, double-edged sword there. That's definitely going on, our own adult fatigue, and then, of course, the child's fatigue. Even if they are good sleepers and they're getting ad adequate sleep and have good naps, you're still dealing with a brain that's fatigued. Most children at this age will show it. They'll be rubbing their eyes. They have that look on their face. Um, their body, their movements aren't as uh, precise, if you will. Everything becomes more emotional. Fatigue is a huge role, uh, plays a huge role in behavioral factors and at bedtime. The other thing that's happening with children and their fatigue is, is not only has the brain been overstimulated for the most part for most of the day, their, their melatonin is, is striking, I mean, roughly about 7 p.m. can be a little bit before, a little bit after. The melatonin is that natural part of the brain that, that's going on, that's helping that brain get to sleep. And so when that's taking place, we want to sort of look at our kids and think, this is when they should be quiet in bed or drifting off to sleep when that melatonin starts uh, strikes, if you will. So there's a, there's a bit of a, a, a fine dance that's going on too. A lot of times I recommend for toddlers that they start to go to bed 6.30, 6.45, 7 the latest. And a lot of people gasp and think, oh my goodness, um, that's way too early. 
we depending on your schedule and everybody is different most of the time the average is a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. sort of schedule if you will and so if we are around 5:36 you can already tell that that child's going to start exhibiting that fatigue and by 6:30 going up into 7 it's we're pretty much done And this is on average, so that's not every single case, every single child. So if you're starting your routine, for example, and asking, take your pajamas off, get into the bath, brush your teeth, wash your hands, and all those other sort of tedious tasks to a two-year-old at seven, you can already see just by the math of the schedule, it's going to be working against you. So we want to have that bedtime routine a little bit earlier um, so that you're not fighting fatigue, okay? That's one of the other factors. And then the other thing is to, um, I believe why the, the reason why melatonin sort of naturally happens, it's instinctual, is that we are get, our bodies and brains are getting ready for night rest. That can be really hard for a lot of people. We're not going to be with our loved ones. It's going to be dark. Um, and so that can already put people at unease or... Ha- create a little bit of insecurity. And if you have that already, or if you exhibit some anxiety already, that's going to ramp it up a little bit more. Now, if you're having a child who's exhibiting some insecurities, potentially some anxiety, which is very common for this age group these days, and you add in, okay, you got to get ready for bedtime, and you won't see me because you're going to be in your bed while I'm watching TV having my wine. (laughs) You can see now that's going to already exasperate the insecurity in that child. They may be more clingy. They may say, no, 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 one more book, mom, please. Um, Or I need that extra drink of water after I've just had five. And you were kind of thinking, (laughs) what's wrong with you? It's that, that last cling on, no, I don't want you to leave me, even though we know we're not leaving them, we're just putting them in their bed, getting ready for what we consider a typical bedtime. So when you can look through those eyes and through that perception, understanding that your child is already potentially feeling uh, uneasy, it can help you sort of calibrate your approach, your reaction, your response. So I'm just pointing that out that these three things are sort of factors that work against us. So if we start our bedtime early, sort of battle out that fatigue before it really kicks in, maybe a little bit more compassionate and connective to that child as we are getting ready for bed, knowing that they're going to miss us and that's natural and normal as well as our own fatigue, that it's going to be harder for us. Our patience is going to be thinner, uh, and we really want to get on with what what we want to do in that evening. So just recognizing those, being aware of them, and then adjusting things or scheduling things and planning to combat those as much as possible will help make that whole bedtime routine a little bit more smoother. A little question for you. Okay. You know, sometimes life comes and then all of a sudden it's nine o'clock and my little munch skills to running around, loving it, playing with his friends, right? Mm-hmm. I'm always worried about the impact of playing a little bit with the time and I'm putting him to bed. Even yeah. if he's not acting up, he's having a great time. And when I put him to bed, he will still go to bed. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I'm worried that it will impact, I don't know, his confidence or I know the routine has good impact on a child, right? Mm-hmm. Any tip for me? Yeah, that's a great question. 
it kind of stems back to, is that child getting adequate sleep? So if that child is getting adequate sleep, so for for um, two years old, I'm just using that as a general um, toddler age, you're looking at about 12 to 14 hours. So let's say a 12-hour night sleep and a two-hour nap sleep as a general. And they've been at that schedule for quite some time, quite a few months. Then I would consider that adequate sleep. Check. <laughs> um if you then have a late night party, um, New Year's is also a big problem or Christmas is like, well, I know I'm going to be staying up late and my child's with me. Anytime you have some kind of event like that, that's going to be happening, you do have the luxury to plan ahead. Maybe it's a little bit longer of a nap. Maybe it's taking it easy for the rest of that day or that afternoon with that child in preparation for, you know, the big, the big hype and the big party for that night. Also taking it easy on that next day. So if you're having a party on Saturday, recognizing that myself (laughs) as the parent and my child might be a little bit groggy, grumpy, not at our best on Sunday. So don't plan anything too major or demand too much of them. So that part is very important. If your child's not getting adequate sleep and their schedule is a bit all over the place or they're they're already more fatigued or exhausted, then you have to be extra careful when pushing those limits um, because it can totally turn on you. Does it impact development the one-off times? I don't think so. It does depend on how you go about it. If you're confident, you have a plan in place, you've sort of let everybody know, let your child know, this isn't going to happen every day. (laughs) Enjoy. (laughs) Enjoy this. And then tomorrow we go back on schedule. It's no different than going on holiday, having a relative stay over at your place for, for a longer period of time that we can adjust. We, we have that flexibility. Routine is key, but not if it's rigid. And so it doesn't provide a great impact that you have these one-off times where sleep kind of just goes out the window, but it's more so how do you get back on track? Mm-hmm. And that's really important. So that's following Sunday, the next day, get everything back on routine as much as possible. Awesome. How can we keep a good connection with our toddlers? First of all, it's it's very easy to be connected to anyone when life is going great, mm-hmm. uh, when we're happy, when the sun's out and we're playing, you know, and everything's all lined up. It's easy to be connected to everybody, even the person who's, you know, swearing at you on the road, stuck in traffic. <laughs> but it's in the times of distress that most people find it very difficult to connect to anyone. And when we sort of use that in terms of toddlerhood and parenting a toddler or any younger child, when they're having their tantrum, when they say no to you, when they are resistant, defiant, and aggressive, we don't want to connect to anything like that. And again, back to the first point when we were talking about tantrums, we get into that stress instinct mode where we're kind of fight or flight. And so it makes it very hard. Our own instincts are working against us, which makes it very hard to want to be connected to a child who's acting out. So recognizing that is key and doing our best to to understand that I'm not just a horrible parent. This is my own instincts triggering me or I'm getting triggered about, about the negative um situation that's going on. 
and then really working towards that goal of, I want to be connected to my child in their times of distress. So if I took the word connection and broke it down a little bit here, we hear that word often. It's it's becoming, it's happening more so that we're seeing it in books and in media and parent educators talking about the importance of connection. A lot of people associate connection and or attachment to affection, snuggles, kisses, hugs, come sit on my lap, all of that type of thing. And those are important, but that's not where it ends. Playtime is also another form of connection. I get a lot of a lot of parents say, I don't have time to play on weekdays. I come home from work, got to get dinner on, bedtime. I don't even play with my child that much or only for a short, very short period of time. Playtime is only one form of connection. And so when we go and sort of break down the concept of connection, we, we can also see that it, it's happening when we correct our child's behavior. It's also happening when we give clear expectations and boundaries. It's happening when we give the choices and, and choose to communicate in an effective manner in a way that that child understands. And in my opinion, the greatest form of connection, that is the, the great investment to have with your child is trying to keep that connection in times of their distress, to be that guide, to be the emotional support, to be that helping hand, that loving face and compassionate heart when that child is at their most time of distress. Uh, what I call the ugly cries. You know, that's just, we're just like, wow. You know, red face, you know, sweaty, on the floor, sort of kicking and screaming. If that child can then look up to that that face, that familiar face, mom, dad, the number one caregiver, and think even at my worst, that parent is still here beside me, refraining from judgment, refraining from blame, and wanting to guide me through this. That to me is the greatest form of connection. So really moving forward, just remembering that connection isn't just a one-sided thing. It's got many dimensions to it, but if we can shift our focus more in trying to connect when we don't feel like it <laughs> and when it's the most hardest, it's when it has the greatest impact. As an example, Julie, my son is over 18 months. He's talking, but it's a limited way of communication like between him and I. So any good ideas, any tricks for this because it's hard sometimes because I don't understand what he's telling me mm-hmm. and I'm pretty aware and probably doesn't understand everything I'm telling him. And then sometimes it goes to tantrums or it goes to a no, you know, and I don't even know what he's saying no about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when, when we have limited language, whether it's because of a delay, age, uh, even when it's not your own child, um, caregivers, educators, preschool teachers, um, daycare staff, sometimes it is hard to understand one another. If we were to look at um, an 18-month-old who has perhaps one to two words um, that they're starting to say, we don't quite understand what they're getting at. There might be a gesture, there might be a pointing to and a word or a sound, and we're just like, I don't know what you're saying. For the most part, we do a lot of guessing, of course. Offer the choices there as well. You can show me or I can get it or go get it for me and show me. Did you want this or this one? Those types of things can help enhance language. Basically, the choices, 
the validation to, I see that you're getting upset with me and saying no, and I'm not sure why, just sort of being honest in that moment with your child, instead of just saying to them that, um, well, I don't know what you're saying. They don't actually even understand that response. You just look like someone who's not fulfilling my agenda. Therefore, they'll get angrier or more aggressive and more demanding in their request. So offering choices, a lot of guessing, those are quite common for the, for the younger age group when language is limited. I'm also going to suggest in their sign language, sometimes when you say stop, all done, and those simple gestures that you can get from, obviously from a sign language course, but you can quickly just look up on Google. We don't have to talk in, in full conversation in sign language, but the odd sign here and there can really enhance that when a ch- little toddler says stop and does the stop sign to you or drink um, or more, that's another big one. W- w- the sign for more is basically your two sort of fists coming together at the fingertips um, repeatedly. That's saying more and more. And so that can enhance and help communication. But I'm also going to add, when we're not getting it, when we really just don't know what that toddler wants, is to refrain from getting agitated, upset, frustrated. You can feel those things, but when we express them, that's only going to aggravate the child. It can give a negative connotation to communication and speaking. Uh, especially about what you feel. So try just to recognize this is difficult when someone's only saying one to two words to you. It is difficult. So as much as possible to have that extra patience, it will pay off later on when your child will need patience with you sometimes (laughs) in the future. It is difficult. But then as language enhances and they start developing and getting older, that then obviously becomes more easier. So Julie, do you have any final thoughts? Anything else you want to share? Yeah, I think also keeping in mind as a parent, we're sort of split into three pieces and that's how I see it anyway. We're we're obviously the parent, that's the mother, father, that caring individual that provides food, clothing, shelter, love. Most people are really, really good at that part. Uh, don't forget you're also your own person. So I am Julie. I'm a woman. I have these needs, wants, desires, and, and perceptions of life and need to honor that. And that's where that self-care component comes in. We have to make sure we're honoring that individual self as well. But the third one that generally gets missed for parents, and especially new parents and parents of younger children, is that you are a teacher. You are your child's first teacher and recognizing they need you to guide them. It's like a bunch of new students or picture a kindergarten class. That kindergarten teacher receives her, you know, 20 new students um, and, and recognizing that they're new at this and we need patience and we've got the whole year to teach them these key skills. Um, so put on your teacher hat and know that you are your great, you're their first teacher, but you are going to always be their greatest teacher. And it's not just about ABCs and one, two, threes. It's going to be about feelings, how to react, how to respond, building resiliency, stress and anxiety, coping skills. That's all coming from um, parents. So just knowing that you have these three very important roles 
um, and just showing up and being willing to to fulfill those roles as much as possible. That's what this is all about, trying our best. There's no perfect scorecard. No one's grading us on this, thank goodness. Um, and there's no pay, so we don't have to worry about getting fired. <laughs> but, uh, but it's really just knowing... Th- that moving forward, we have these three components to a parent, and that's what can make it very difficult. It's a, it's the most important role in the entire world that we're raising this generation. So take it easy on yourself. Never stop trying. Be willing um, to be open to new ideas, new strategies, and guide your children as much as possible so that they can develop into their wonderful human being selves. Well, thank you, Julie. That's uh, all beautiful informations. I think it's time for a conversation card. It's time for a conversation card. Every week we like to play a game, not only for fun, but to get to know our guests a little more too. Nobody knows what the mystery card might ask, sometimes silly and sometimes serious. Let's find out what it will be this week. Heather, can you please pick one and read it to us, please? All right, ladies. So today, here we go. Which is more important, intelligence or common sense? (laughs) Wow. Uh, Right off the bat, I'm going to go with common sense versus intelligence. um, Because what I consider under the umbrella of common sense is emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence doesn't actually fall under what we consider intelligent, which is that that logic smarts. We need that, absolutely. But in this day and age, with this amount of stress and anxiety and the fast pace of life, we need to have common sense as a priority. And when we when we look at our children teaching that resiliency to be able to snap back when life kicks you down, that's sort of where I think uh, we're headed towards even more so in the future. And I would pick uh, definitely common sense over intelligence. And for you, Heather? I definitely agree with everything Julie just said. Common sense, yes. definitely. I mean, uh, intelligence, I mean, yes, we can go to university forever. We can become professional <laughs> students. But there, I've, I've, I feel like I've even met people that are super, super educated that don't have the social skills and the common sense. And so I think that is a very, very important piece yeah, of yeah. the puzzle. Especially in this day and age. Yeah, definitely. I think it's hard to pick. Because they're both so important, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, if you're intelligent, this is what, if you go to university, that's what actually will have you be able to be what you want to be. But without common sense in everyday life, it's harder, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's hard to not talk about emotional intelligence too, mm-hmm. like Julia was just saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm at, I think we all agree to add, yeah. add the third one in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See all of the above. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Julie. And thank you, Heather, for being uh, with us today. That concludes today's episode. So thank you for your contribution in other parents' lives, helping us be the best parents we can be. For our listeners, if you have a question or you would like to join us on our show as a guest or as an expert, please visit the contact us section on our website at parenttalk.ca. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Podbean. Or you can subscribe directly to this podcast on our website at parenttalk.ca so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review us. 
that would be awesome. Remember, there's nothing more powerful than feeling supported by a committee of parents by sharing your thoughts, ideas, and experiences. Parent Talk is a safe space for everyone. Thank you everyone for listening and have a great week. The views and or opinions of the host and their guests are not necessarily those of Parent Talk and should not be considered as fact. The information offered is believed to be accurate but is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice and should not be used for diagnosing or treating any health issue or prescribing medication. If you have any questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your child, please seek assistance from a qualified healthcare practitioner.